Well, good morning, Restoration Church. So, so glad to be here with you. Third week of the series, Haunted House. I definitely want to thank Bonnie Rife, who was a guest speaker last week, and my wife, uh, Michelle, opened up this series the first week, and uh, it's been a good series so far. Today, I'm excited to start a conversation with you, uh, centered around God's Word on the topic, My Kids Are Monsters. And... Um, Listen, you may have never said that out loud, but there may, be, there may have been a time in your life where you've thought that. And what happens is, um, you know, even no matter what stage of life you're in, whether they're little kids, you're like, oh, my word, he's, you know, I'm having such a hard time. I didn't know little kids could, um, could be such a challenge. Um, there, you've got the, the preteen age, which is, um, which is now probably what some of your parents were dealing with when you were like 16 years old. This culture's moved so forward so fast that the problems our kids are facing, they're facing them earlier and earlier. And, uh, and then even if your kids are in their 20s, you're having to deal with them and parent them um, uh, into a much later stage of life. So for some of us, our grandparents were getting married when they're 18 years old, but there's a phenomenon known as extended adolescence, and what you have is some 29-year-olds who still haven't grown up, who still haven't entered manhood or womanhood, and there's a 29-year-old teenager. So there's all kinds of challenges and, and a lot more complications in parenting than ever before. Because I know when I was growing up, my mom, you know, her solution to everything was go outside and play. And we wouldn't even play in our own yard. We'd just get on our bikes and meander into, into the county and then just return at any point. And so, we, you know, obviously we can't, most parents, aren't, you just can't parent that way anymore. Not if you're ultimately thinking about your, and having care and concern for your child. We end up in a place where we think or even say that our kids are monsters. And really, um, what happens is we're looking at what's before us and we're overwhelmed by their behaviors. We're overwhelmed by culture and even what their friends are doing. You know, should I give my second-year-old uh, a $500 smartphone? And, and it seems like every parent is doing that. What, you know, what, what am I going to do? Am I going to... And you're overwhelmed by culture and everything that culture is teaching and trying to figure out where you're going to send your kids to school, who you're going to allow to be the influences in their life. And then I think oftentimes, if we'll just be honest, there are times as parents where, you know what, we're just scared of our kids. You just, you're scared of how they're going to act when you go in public. You're scared of how they're going to act at church. And so you, we parent in the same way that we enter a haunted house, um, you know, looking around every corner and, and just trying to do everything we can to appease them, which is not at all going to get you what you want. And I want you to know that uh, our boys aren't perfect. If you don't know, Michelle and I, we've got four boys, um, ages uh, um, 10, 9, 7, and 5. We also have had some, uh, uh, some 
young adults lived with us at different times. So we had a six-year-old that lived with us for, uh, until she got married. So she lived with us a number of years. And we've had about a handful of other uh, girls move in when they were 18 years old and live with us for a little while while they were establishing and setting out on their own. So we get a little bit of a background. We've helped um, teenagers enter marriage and, and, and get through college. And also we've had the sleepless nights of a newborn. Now, our boys, our, our, our biological kids, they're not perfect, and we will never, ever pretend that they're perfect. We don't want to come off as looking like we've got it all together because, because we don't. Now, we're very proud of our boys. We're proud of our marriage. We're proud of our family, but it is not perfect. Last week, so it was one week ago, Sunday. No, it was Monday, so it's not even yet a week ago that feels like that. Um, because I just uh, was traveled to Africa, and we just had men's retreat, and I had a bunch of meetings in between the two events. Um, you know, our boys are feeling the challenge of, I miss dad, I don't see dad. And that ends up erupting in a bunch of negative behavior, because if I can't get positive attention, I'm going to try to receive negative attention. So Monday night, we've got a, 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 a few couples over our house. Um, it was... Uh, part work, part social, but it was in, it was an important it was an important gathering, and simultaneous to this important dinner, one of our kids is having a meltdown and he's doing everything he can to be a disruption. So at one point I go upstairs and he's taking uh, you know his mattress is off the top bunk and um, uh, and then this was the highlight of it for me. We were in the kitchen. Uh, everybody was there. It was just arrived, so you get the chaos and the noise of everybody greeting and talking and chit-chatting and, and, and trying to get the last-minute things for the meal ready. And, uh, and then I, I hear some commotion in the other room. I quickly go into the other room, and there's one of my kids throwing a chicken into the house. Um, and, and I'm like, don't you? And he takes on running. So it was, it was this quick. Michelle, there's a chicken in the house, and then I'm going after, going after the other kid. So she ushers. The, anyway, I'm not going to pretend at all because there's eyewitnesses there. Uh, that was not what was on the menu, all right? Um, so I was just in Africa. I mean, that's what they do, hey? <laughs> um, before we eat, let's all pluck this bird. Uh, so... We, uh, so this is, this is something that I'm not coming as something that I've got superior authority, but really something that I'm living myself, and there's some lessons I've learned um, through being a dad. There's some things I've uh, learned from mentors of mine, and there's some things, you know, that you've, you, I, I just read a lot of books, and so, and listen to podcasts, and so there's different things that we picked up from that. I want to read you, though, because I want to encourage you um, a little bit to know if you're feeling like you're failing, there is hope. Things can turn around if you persevere. But also to let you know that the Bible is full of some imperfect people as well. And I want to read to you a scripture here. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. There was a guy, he was a priest, and um, it's a describing verse about his family. Verse number 12, it says, now the sons of Eli 
were scoundrels who had no respect for the Lord. Well, I tell you what, that is, uh, that is quite the verse about a guy's two kids. His, his son's name were uh, Hophni and Phinehas, and, um, and this is the Bible describing those kids, describing Eli's sons. Now, imagine if your kids were stuck in the Word of God and described in the Word of God. What would the Bible have to say about them? I mean, I think, I think my kids would be described a uh, similar way to John the Baptist. They lived like they were in the wilderness. They wore clothes of coarse camel hair and ate locusts and wild honey. That's the Gagney boys. What would it say about your kids? But, you know, because this scripture is in there, it, there's something we can learn. We can learn from the failures of Eli. And that's what we want to do today. If you've got your Bibles, open up to 1 Samuel. That's uh, the passage of scripture we just read. We're going to read. We're going to be in chapter 2 and a little bit in chapter 3, looking at what he did wrong so that we have the opportunity to act in a way different than he did. So um, just as you're turning there, Eli was a high priest, so he was a priest who led other priests. And at this time in his life, his sons were adults, and they were serving as priests as well. So they're not little kids at this point, but now um, uh, what you're seeing is really them living according to how they've been raised, which is not always the case, but we'll see in here. Um, it was Eli's parenting that led to this result. And now these guys, they're serving as priests, and what they were doing is they were using their position in an unlawful way, in, in an ungodly way. And at this time... In Jewish culture, people were bringing uh, animals for sacrifices for the atonement of their sins. And, and so you would have uh, a sacrifice of an animal to receive forgiveness and cleansing from your sin. And what, um, what Eli's sons were doing is when people would bring in, you know, uh, bring in animals... It says in scripture that they were using like a long fork to take the best cuts of meat. So, you know, and they're like, well, I'll take, you know, the back straps, I'll take the, uh, the, the tenderloin, and they're taking the best cuts of meat for themselves. And when there was opposition to that, really they were holding, like, I'm the priest, you're going to talk back to me? Really, you're going to do that? And so people would, uh, no one was standing up to how they were acting. So this was one of the behaviors that hap was happening. And, and at this point in their life, their dad is almost essentially their boss. And we begin to see that he knows it's going on, but he doesn't do anything about it. So we're going to start reading in verse number 22. And we're going to look at three major failures in Eli's, in Eli's parenting. And the first was a failure to discipline. Verse number 22 says, Now Eli was very old, but he was aware of what his sons were doing to the people of Israel. He knew, for instance, that his sons were seducing the young woman who assisted at the entrance of the tabernacle. 
Eli had said to them, I've been hearing reports from all the people about the wicked things you are doing. Why do you keep sinning? Eli, uh, and he said in verse number 24, you must stop, my sons. The report I hear among the Lord's people are not good. If someone sins against another person, God can mediate for the guilty party. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede? But Eli's sons wouldn't listen to their father, for the Lord was already planning to put them to death. So there's a big, you know, they were, what they were committing was a, 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 a terrible, terrible sin against God. What you hear Eli doing right here is he's disapproving of his son's behavior. And it's as if he was aware of it, but now, like, everybody was aware of it, and that was the first time he's really get addressing it to them. So when he knew what was going on, he just kind of turned his eyes away, averted, he didn't pay attention to it, but now that it was affecting his reputation, now that the reputation had, and what they were doing was aware, now he was saying, listen, you guys, you've got to knock it off. Why do you keep doing this? And though he disapproved of their behavior, it was meaningless because he didn't follow it up with any sort of discipline. What should he have done as their dad? Well, that's a, you know, but what should he have done as the high priest? Well, that was obvious. They should have been removed immediately the moment he knew. As their dad... It doesn't matter that he's their dad and also their boss. One of the sayings we use here, you know, amongst the leadership of Restoration Church is don't hire family unless you can fire family. So unless you're willing to fire, um, uh, you know, your mom, don't hire her on your staff. And that's probably good advice for your family business as well. But Eli had, Eli had, a responsibility before God, before the nation, before his household to bring discipline to these guys, and he didn't. He told them to stop. They didn't. And that was it. He never did anything else to them. Um, Solomon, who's a different guy who, um, who authored in the Bible, he was a later king of the nation of Israel. He wrote this in Proverbs 19.18. He said, discipline your children while there is hope. Otherwise, you will ruin their lives. Discipline your children while there is hope. Otherwise, you will ruin their lives. And we, we look at our kids, and I think it, it becomes a, a little bit obvious in hindsight that there were behaviors maybe we shouldn't have allowed. But I think it's really important when you've got a two-year-old, really one of the most important lessons your two-year-old can learn is that you're the boss. And, and what Solomon's showing us in this scripture is there does come a point where Discipline is, is going to be ineffective and where you'll, you'll have no ability to discipline. So you want to make sure you're starting early, you're setting boundaries early, and that you're maintaining those. 
You don't want to be a parent that says, that's bad, stop doing that, and then you're continuing to let them, you know, buy other kids. Or you're continually, continuing to let them do whatever they want. You're just sitting on the couch saying, stop that, stop that, stop that, stop that, stop that. Get up off the couch and help them to stop that. You, you have to, you, your words just making threats. Well, I'll take away your candy, and then you don't. Well, I'll give you early bedtime, and then you don't. Well, I'll take away your keys to your car, and then you don't. Well, I'm not going to pay your insurance, but then you still do. All these things um, establish and, 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 and teach your children, you're never going to do anything about it. So they learned that lesson at three years old, that I'm going to continue doing this until I get up off the couch, or really, I'll do whatever they want, and mom or dad is not actually going to punish me. They're going to feel bad later, or I'm going to warm up to them later, and they'll forget all about it. And they've manipulated you, they've tricked you, and, uh, and you now are um, in the company of Eli. You failed the discipline, but guess what? You still get time. All right, you got all afternoon to discipline your kids. <laughs> um, so we, in our culture, we put too much focus on being a cool parent and not enough focus on being a parent. Uh, I was listening to a comedian, a famous comedian in our culture right now, and he was talking about when I was 15 years old, my mom bought me uh, bought a huge box of condoms and lay and put it on my pillow for me, and um, you know I don't know what your parenting strategy is, and and some parents strategy well they're going to do it anyway um, you know uh, I want to make sure that they you know if they're going to drink they're going to drink at my house if they're going to uh, sleep with their boyfriend or girlfriend it's going to be at our house and we you know so we're going to have the 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 place for them to sin or to participate in these activities. So, and I, that may be your strategy. I, I'm telling you, what we see is being the cool parent or being the likable parent doesn't produce in your kids what ultimately you want. It doesn't produce uh, in them the character that God's called you to help raise them up. So the second thing that we see was a failure that, um, that Eli did. We see in verse number 29, and it was a failure to differentiate. So verse number 29, God now is speaking through, through another man to Eli. And as the man stood before Eli and says, I've got a word of the Lord for you. And part of that is in verse number 29. It says, so why do you scorn my sacrifices and offerings? Why do you give your sons more honor than you give me? For you and they have become fat from the best offerings of my people Israel. What we're seeing here is that Eli is not living any differently than his sons. Or even in, the, in his heart is not living any differently. He's not seducing the girls at the gate, but yet he is participating with them. And we see this because in chapter 4, um, 
you know, his two sons die. They're, they're in battle. They're carrying the ark of the Lord, believing that it will bring protection to them. But because they had no relationship with God and they had no honor for God, God didn't protect them when they were in that battle. They were both killed. Eli, when he got the news, he fell backwards where he was sitting. He broke his neck and died. But when in that scripture, in, in 4 verse 18, it says, He fell backward from his seat beside the gate. He broke his neck and died, for he was old and overweight. And um, we used to love talking about that when I was in church. Eli died because he was old and fat. We, we just loved that. That was so funny. You just think about this, this big Humpty Dumpty uh, falling off the wall and, and it's over. But... Uh, the reason that scripture's in there, and Mark that he was overweight, it wasn't the Bible poking fun at this guy, but it was showing Eli was living off the prime cuts of the meat that his sons were stealing. God said it here, right here in the scripture, for you and they have become fat from the best offerings. Well, one of the reasons he wasn't saying anything about it because he was benefiting from it. And, you, and, and for you, you know, if you think about being the cool parent, you, ben, you, feel, you, you benefit from that because there's something inside of you that likes being popular, that likes the kids at school saying, oh, you've got the cool mom, you've got the cool dad. And so you're allowing them to do things that maybe you don't really agree with, but there's a benefit for you. You like that you, you like that popularity. You like it that people are recognizing you as the cool parent. Eli's physique reveals that he didn't divide himself from the sinful activities of his sons. He was participating in it. What we see is even though he was high priest, he hardly lived differently than his sons. And he kind of took the high road, stop sinning, stop sinning, but he was sinning with them. What happens is, you, you know, we have to live differently. We live differently than our kids. We live differently than culture. Not in a way that's legalistic, setting up rules to say if you don't follow these rules, then you won't have a salvation. Uh, you, you know, and every culture has got different things. But we live differently. You know, it's a terrible thing to tell your kids that you follow Jesus, and that, but, but then you don't live any differently from your neighbor or from the other parents at your school or from, you know, from the other parents that, uh, whether they're aunts and uncles that your kids interact with. And, and, and you identify, yeah, we follow Jesus, we're a Christian home, we go to church every Sunday, and the kid's looking at you, and looking at you Sunday night after church, looking at you Monday through Saturday, and then they're looking at their friends, parents, and like, the only thing different is we wake up early on Sunday morning, this is stupid. I swear when I get older, I'm never going to make my kids go to church. What a way, we think about all the fun things we could be doing on Sunday morning instead of just pretending like we follow Jesus when we really don't. It's a, it's a tragic thing to tell your kids, no, we're a Christian home, we don't do that. 
And you're like, well, we're a Christian home. We do everything else that we're not supposed to. You certainly don't have a problem doing the sins that you like. And when we, and so it's a, it's a, it's an important thing for us. We don't use Jesus' name in something if we're not actually following Jesus. The last thing that uh, was a failure of Eli's is in chapter 3, so you can turn, turn the page if you need to, and it was Eli's failure to disciple his sons. Now, in chapter 3, there's a famous story that's often preached about a, uh, about a 12-year-old boy named Samuel who uh, his mother Hannah had dedicated him to the Lord. He went and lived with Eli, and Eli was training him to be a priest and a judge over Israel. And, uh, and so this famous part in verse number 8 said, So the Lord called to Samuel a third time, and once more Samuel got up and went to Eli. This is the middle of the night. And says to Eli, here I am. Did you call me, Eli? Then Eli realized it was the Lord who was calling the boy. So he said to Samuel, go and lie down again. And if someone calls again, say, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. So Samuel went back to bed. When it happened the next time, Samuel said, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. God spoke to him. And Samuel went on to be an amazing and powerful man of God. But it says in the passage of Samuel, it says it was very rare for people to have visions or to hear from the Lord during this time of history. Why? Because the high priest and the sons who were priests were living for themselves. They weren't living in passion and obedience for God. They were living for their cuts of meat. They were living and using their influence to, to attract girls. And they were living a comfortable life, not a set-apart and different life. So because of that, God wasn't moving. But here was Samuel, a young 12-year-old boy who was saying, hey, I'll follow you, Lord. And God even used Eli, who was not a person Samuel should model his life after. But, but Eli, even in all of his dysfunction, was able to disciple Samuel and say, oh, I think it's God speaking to you. Here's how you, here's how you talk to God. What we see is, he never taught his sons that. There's a real danger as a pastor, as the pastors in their church, but a real danger for you as well as someone who's following Jesus to invest your life in other people and not invest your life into your own kids. This is, this is, a, this is a definitely a, big, a real danger in pastoral ministry. Because you go home and your kids are releasing chickens into your house. But you come to church and people are saying, oh, you're a man of God. Would you pray for me? You go home and, uh, and, and your kids put something down the toilet and flushed it and it's clogged. And you're going to have to take apart the whole toilet. But you come to church and, and, and people are saying, hey, you know, uh, uh, your message last week. And there's a real danger to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invest my life where it's appreciated unless you can have that same danger. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share this illustration. 
the story from my life. It wasn't in my it wasn't in my notes, and I don't want to disparage my own dad. All right, so if he ends up listening to this online, uh, it's water under the bridge. But when I grew up in this church, I started coming when I was five years old uh, to the midweek program here, and it was a program called Royal Rangers, which is like Boy Scouts. And and from age five to age sixteen, uh, I was actually until I went to college, I was involved in this. So it was camping trips, uh, you, you know, 10 times a summer, um, uh, midweek programs all the time, all the time. It was just nonstop, it was all the time. And uh, whenever I went on these trips, and my dad was a Christian, um, but, when I were, I, but he didn't come to our church, he didn't come to Restoration Church. Whenever I went on these trips, I was always paired up with the guy who didn't have kids, because my dad wasn't on the trip. So it was all these sons and their dads, and me and some other random guy it was always this it seemed to always be this guy named Ken and uh, and it was that way really for a lot of years and I remember the shocking thing happened when I was about uh, 16 years old my dad became a Royal Ranger leader he began to serve in the same kids program but the bizarre thing was it was at another church and he, not the church I went to. So my dad was serving as a Royal Ranger leader, helping boys at this other church when his own sons were involved in a Royal Ranger program and he didn't help there. It, it's a stupid thing that we do as parents. When your friend has, when your child has a friend over and you sit down with them at the dining room table and you talk with them about their problems and you pray for them and your kid's sitting there like, I wish my parents would do that for me. At youth crew or, you know, at youth events or at church and you're praying for other kids and your kid's looking like, man, my parents never put their hand on me and prayed for me. And we've got to really look and say, what are the things my kids need? It doesn't matter if they're stiff-arming you, if they're yelling at you. You will not give up on that relationship, connecting with their heart, connecting with who they are as a person. And that goes for every single one of your kids. Because if you have multiple kids, you know, they've got different personalities. And there's some you connect with. And then, you know, it's the age-old joke, we don't get along because we're just like each other. Well, you should understand what they're feeling like then. That should give you an insight into connecting with them, uh, talking with them, building a relationship with them. If you, if the hobbies you have aren't any of the hobbies your kids like, you change your hobbies to get involved in their life. It's a real important thing that we disciple our own kids. So what do we learn? Uh, We've got to disciple our kids. We don't just tell them what to do. We tell them why to do it. We don't just get up and get ready for church. We tell them why we go to church. We don't just tell them to read the Bible. We help them to understand what they're reading in the Bible. And one of the things that, you, that I would encourage you to do is to establish some discipleship goals for each of your children. One of the things we have here is a program called Follow, which is one-on-one -on -one discipleship. You can go through Follow with another person, then become a coach, then 
you could bring your own teenager through follow. And sit down with your 14-year-old or your 17-year-old and every week for eight weeks go through the reading and the Bible and invest and become the coach for your own kids. One of the goals that, uh, that Michelle and I established a few years ago um, was that I want to bring me as, as dad, I want to bring each of my boys separately, one-on-one, to a mission trip. And so we brought uh, Benai when he was seven years old. I brought him to Africa with me on a trip. Abram, he just came with me on the trip we went on a couple weeks ago. And, w- and when I came home and my kids hugged me, the seven-year-old, one of the first things out of his mouth were, yay, I'm next, because he knows he's next in line. So it's a goal. To, to, and it's, deli- it's a deliberate part of the bigger picture of who we're hoping to craft them into. Young children with compassion for all kinds of people. And when they, you know, when, 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 you know, when they have an American luxurious lifestyle that really every single one of our, almost every single one of our kids have, they are the richest kids in the world. They understand it's a blessing that we've been given it, and we've got to steward it well. When you give at church, they know why you tithe. When you give at the miracle offering, they know why you're giving at the miracle offering. Discipling, deliberate, telling them what, uh, what's going on in your life. So we learn from that. We're, we're going to disciple our own kids. We're going to be deliberate about that. Now we disciple other kids as well not to the neglect of our own. We make a commitment to discipline. And uh, there's different times in our boy's life where a behavior pops up and, and they're acting a certain way. They're talking back to me or they're yelling at their mom or, uh, you know, or it's a bad behavior. And the, the mild correction's not getting it done. And Michelle and I have a conversation. And I know for some behaviors, we can say, all right, well, we're going to change this. Uh, it's all hands on deck for the next two weeks. So we'll sit with the kid and say, hey, we want you to know we recognize this behavior. We're not going to tolerate it anymore. And so the immediate uh, response when you do this is going to be this. And then we are on it. We're all over that kid, like way on rice. And, and, and not in a jerky way, but you, you, at that point, we're much more patient than we normally are because we know we've got this one. We're a team, and I don't care how stubborn that kid is. I'm more stubborn, and um, and so and, and so for the next two weeks, it's just up. Oh, hey, you spoke to your mom. Go to your room. What? I, go to your room. <laughs> it, it, it's no yelling. There's no argument because, and what happens is slowly, and I tell you what, those first three or four days are the worst, but by the end of the two weeks, they've gotten it. Now, some things are much take a, a lot more effort than that, and they'll. There's seasons where we've brought our kids to a counselor and we paid for counseling so we can have a mediator and try to make a connection and, 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 to, and to break a, a behavior that is a lot deeper than a behavior. It's something, it's a pain in their heart. We don't want to just punish our kids. We really want to get to the heart of what's going on. Scripture says 
man looks at the outside, but God looks at the heart. We're followers of Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit within us. So we don't want them to just behaving externally and have a hard heart toward us. And we don't want to just punish their behavior, but we want to try to sit down with them and say, hey, what's going on? Why'd you throw a chicken in the house? What's going on? Why are you talking to mom like that? What's going on? Why are you punching your brother? Tell me what's really going on. Nothing's going on. No, tell me what's really going on. You find out they're being bullied. You find out maybe that they've seen something they shouldn't have seen. You find out they just missed their dad who's got too many meetings at night and I've got to readjust my calendar. You, you begin to find out all those things that now you've got compassion and you don't, listen, here's a big good advice. Don't take away the discipline at that point. Say, listen, you're still grounded. You still lost your video game because we can't allow that behavior in the house. But can I give you a hug? Can we go out to dinner tomorrow night? Can we, can we meet with a counselor? Can we talk with a teacher? Can we do that? And you, and you don't, um, don't ever take away the discipline from that, but change how you interact with that kid. And then the last thing, guys, is you live a set-apart life. You live a different life than the rest of the world. Really important that you tell your kids your testimony, that they know who you were before you came to Christ, why you came to Christ, and how different your life is, and how different their life is because you follow Jesus. They need to know that. I remember when my kids were four years old and three years old, and, and, and it was a conversation with them. Dad used to be a bad guy, but Jesus changed me. And it was one of those, you know, one of those conversations probably where the four-year-old saying, you're a bad dad, you're mean. I'm like, if you think of me now, you should have seen me before Jesus changed my life. How do you share that with them? That they know we're not religious people. We're people who've been changed by Jesus. So we live differently than everyone else. And here's what ultimately should happen. Our kids should love that we follow Jesus. We should live in such a way with the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. We should live in such a way with our involvement in church, with our friendships, with our circles, that our kids love that we follow Jesus. When they go to school and they look at everybody's home and they hear the stories about everybody else's parents and they hear about divorce and addiction and, and materialism and, and people pursuing careers and and then they look back at us and say, you know what, you know, my parents are weird. I don't get all their rules, but you know what? <laughs> I'm glad that they're my parents. I'm glad that they follow Jesus. That's how we should live. Will you close your eyes? I want to take a moment and pray for you. If you're here today and you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, I I want to invite you to do that right now. Maybe you walked away from Jesus because of the way your parents acted, which is not uncommon. It just gave you a whole bunch of religious rules to follow, and it seemed so absolutely stupid. But today, you're hearing Jesus talked about in a way you've never heard of before, and 
maybe you're hearing him talk about the way that you always thought he was, but you never saw lived out in your home. Today's the day you can, you can give your life to him. It's not complicated, it's not hard, and you don't have to live the way your parents did. You just make a decision right now. Jesus, I believe that you're God's son. I ask you to forgive my sins, and today I make a decision to follow you. When you tell that to him, all of your sins are forgiven. He, 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 he gives you everlasting life, and he changes your life today. If, you've, if, you, if just even while I was talking, you told that to God, there's a connection card. Um, if you didn't already hand it in on your seat, write your name, check the box at the very bottom. I've decided to follow Jesus. We want to celebrate that with you and help you on your journey now, learning to follow Jesus. For the rest of us, you know, you're, you're you know, if you're a parent and you're struggling, you're like, I, you know, I just feel like I'm losing. I feel like my kids are winning. I feel like they're, um, you know, they're turning into something. Or maybe you feel like a failure. You know what, you can do everything right as a parent, but a kid can still decide to walk away and to pursue their own desires. Don't beat yourself up on that. You just put yourself at the place of the dad of the prodigal son, and, and you know when they return, you're not going to come in, you're not going to point your finger and say, I told you so, but you're going to receive them with love. So I just want to pray. I want to pray for every parent. And really, I want to pray for every aunt and uncle, uh, every grandparent, because um, you may have nieces and nephews or grandkids who aren't living in a home where their parents follow Jesus. And so there's a great opportunity for you, as you live differently, for them to see that, those kids to see that, and for you to create a, a, an eventual opportunity to share your story of Jesus with them. Because they'll ask. Jesus, I pray for every person. And I just pray, Lord, you pour down your spirit on us. We won't be people who are just religious people following a religious duty, but we'd be people who know you, are passionate uh, followers of you, and, uh, and, and we don't just, uh, we don't just, accept what culture's doing or indulge in any sin or even indulge in behavior that doesn't, you, you know, it doesn't even seem like it could be sin, but we say, what does your scripture say? We study your scripture and we live that way, trying to honor you in every area of our life and never making compromise. But help us be people who love you and know you, listen to your voice, and may our kids see that. They won't see us as people who are just legalistic and have rules and, and that they have to come against that, but that they'll see the fruit and benefit of a godly life. And they'll see the impact you've made in our life. And they'll talk to you themselves and they'll make a decision to follow you. I pray for every parent and child relationship. I pray, God, for supernatural strength for every parent, every single parent who doesn't have a tag team partner on the wildest days. And I just pray, God, they realize they're not alone. There's a community here and a church family here. And um, through, through kids ministry, through U-Turn, the student ministry, there's partners with them. They're not alone. 
And uh, God, they're not alone because you're with them in that home. And you can empower them and support them and help them through every, every moment. And just like, um, you know, just like my, as my wife talked about in her sermon the first week, that a single mom can raise four godly kids. And, uh, and uh, God, there's a, there's a new heritage. There's a new heritage coming for every person in our church. We love you, Jesus. We give you all the praise. In Jesus' name we pray.